0: So I wanted to start with a poem tonight from William Stafford. It's called, The Way It Is. It sounds like he's been on a Vipassana retreat, doesn't it? (laughs) The Way It Is. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you're pursuing. You have to explain about the thread but it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. So there's a story in the suttas about a student who came to the Buddha, much in the same way that you've been coming to us with your interviews in recent days. And the student has a question for the Buddha. He wants to know where a noble disciple, that's somebody who's a follower of the Buddha, can dwell once he has heard the teachings. And, you know, it reminds me so much of, especially today and yesterday, for the interviews that I did do yesterday morning, you know, that question of, well, what next? You know, what happens after retreat? How do I carry this practice into my life? How can I live it? Or maybe do I just need to move in at Spirit Rock and stay here for the rest of the time? And some of you, of course, every now and then there's somebody who says to us, wow, you know, this practice, will it change my life? And the answer is, I don't know whether it's good news or bad news, yes, it will. It will. So the Buddha, in his interview, being a kind and compassionate teacher, gives the student a teaching about where the mind can live, where the mind and heart, can rest and be at home." And he describes places in the heart where the where we can live, as he said, evenly amidst an uneven generation, dwell unafflicted amongst an afflicted generation. So you know, if you think back a week ago, maybe on your way here you were listening to NPR or something like that, Or whenever you last looked at the news, Um, we certainly have an uneven generation and we certainly have afflicted times. You know, the Buddha was right in tune with our fairly bumpy and often kind of sick culture and world. And in the midst of everything that's going on in the world, the economic, I don't know what to call it — disaster, ups and downs, whatever, the political unrest and the wars that are everywhere — we often just yearn for some time of peace and rest. So the Buddha named six places, three of which are likely to be pretty familiar to you, and three of which may be a little bit surprising. So here are the six. The three familiar ones are the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. You probably could have guessed that. And then the second three are your own virtue, your own generosity, and then last of all, the devas. So just to put a note in here about devas in Buddhist cosmology, I actually printed out a definition, the heaven realms are blissful abodes whose present inhabitants are the devas who have gained rebirth there through their past meritorious actions. However, their devas, they're still subject to sickness and aging and death, and ultimately they also get reborn. But they they inhabit a pretty um, nice place, and it's considered to be an, an optimal rebirth if you believe in that stuff. So it's interesting, you know, this list makes sense a lot until you get to the Davis and then you think, uh, what? (laughs) So, we'll talk about that in a minute. So, you know, no matter what you're going back to tomorrow, you know, whether you're going back to your old routine, or I know some of you are headed for a week of vacation in California, more than one of you actually, Uh, Some of you are headed back to the same old job. Some of you are headed back to no job. Some of you are headed back to a new job. I've heard all of those. Um, A relationship that's either yummy and delicious or problematic or somewhere in between. You know, no matter what you're going back to, it really doesn't matter, does it? We still need places for the mind and the heart to rest. And we need to be able to access some of that steadiness and clarity that you found here on the retreat, you know, that where you can open the heart and, and have some equanimity, actually. Now, it's probably true that there's at least one person, maybe more than one, who's had the retreat from hell this week, and you're really eager to get home and you're not in the slightest interest in taking any of the mind states that visited you while you were here because they weren't very fun. Because there are retreats like that, I know that, I've had at least one. And so you might be really eager to leave. And that's okay, that's fine, it happens. Please come back and try again. Um, but what's also true, even for people who have had that kind of a retreat, a really difficult retreat, you're still wanting or the world, you wouldn't be here if you weren't to find these places where you can rest the mind. So with these first three, clearly we're revisiting the refuges, right? Refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. I think it's nice to note, because I don't think we did earlier on, that these refuges are also known as the three jewels of the practice. And... I actually really like revisiting the notion of refuge at the end of the retreat because, you know, we take them at the beginning of the retreat and we need it for here, for the retreat. But if you thought you needed it for the retreat, you really need it for when we go home. And So we've, at all the retreats I teach, I've sort of begun insisting that we take refuge and take the precepts again at the end. You'll see that tomorrow. So when we rest in the Buddha, resting in the Buddha sounds lovely. I think there's even a book somewhere um, called Resting in the Lap of the Buddha or something like that, yeah. So you can, yeah, Gavin Harrison. And so you can imagine, you know, resting in the Buddha, resting in the lap of that which is completely awake, you know, fully enlightened, accomplished in knowledge and conduct, sublime, knower of the world, leader and teacher. These are all things that are said about the Buddha. So the other night Bob talked about the story of the Buddha, you remember, about his early years and the prophecies around his birth and his awakening. And the thing that's always so amazing to me whenever I visit the story of the Buddha is that this guy lived 2,500 years ago, and we're still talking about him. Now that's amazing, right? I mean, I do not for a moment think that 2,500 years from now people are going to be talking about Mary Grace Orr. I just don't think it's going to be true, you know? And they're probably not going to be talking about Bob Stahl either, I'm sorry, but, you know, it would be nice if they did. And But that give, always gives me a sense of the power of his teachings, that they have reverberated for so strongly, for so long, and, and that we still, in our generation, consider him to be a great being. And you might remember, I can't remember whether Bob told this part of the story, that after his experience under the Bodhi tree, when he encountered somebody who wanted to know who he was, His answer was, he didn't say, you know, I'm Siddhartha Gautamaura. He didn't say I'm the brand new Buddha. Actually, he did once. It didn't work so well. But then the second time he said, I am awake. I am awake. Well, that's interesting. You know, when someone says who you are, if I say to Bob, who are you? And he says, I am awake. I'm a little startled, usually I would be. So he was one of a very few, very really rare occasion to have someone who's completely awake, living totally in the present moment, not caught by the stories that the heart and the mind produce. And you know, if you took nothing home from this retreat except the awareness that the mind creates stories and I'm sure every mind in this room has done that this week, that it cranks out stories and commentaries and judgments and criticisms and suggestions and commands endlessly, endlessly. And it doesn't mind being repetitive either. You know? <laughs> and, you know, you begin to see that some of what the mind puts out is not even particularly true or accurate. You know, it's just not true. And that, I am here to tell you, on a stack of suttas, that's been one of the most valuable things that I have learned in this practice, is that I do not always believe what my mind tells me. It's so helpful to have that thought. Is this a useful thought? And sometimes the answer is no. Don't pay any attention to that one. Because I think back in the old days, you know, when I was a sprout, I used to think that every, if I thought it, it must be true. Which is kind of strange. I'm sure none of you are caught by that. But, you know, I was, and it has been really helpful to see that this mind has no shame. And, you know, repetitive soap operas certainly are the order of the day on meditation retreats. So we see But the mind builds these houses of stories endlessly and we walk in and take up residence inside of those stories and we look out through the window of the story and see through those lenses. So waking up is beginning to understand that this is so and to choose what we listen to and choose what we act out of. And this is a place of considerable rest and refuge. So the Buddha in us, that which is awake in each one of us, that awake place, sees through the stories and knows, how the, tr- knows the truth. That's the, that poem that I read the other mo- morning from Galway Canal. Whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. It's a wonderful poem. Whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. That willingness to be awake to what is, that that's what we really want, and when we can sustain the gaze on something, that is where the refuge is. A friend of mine... was a soldier in Vietnam. And he used to tell a wonderful story about, a wonderful and horrible story, about how he had gone out on a, a mission and um, they thought they were going to have to, you know, attack someplace where there were, Viet Cong. It turned out that they didn't, there was nothing that happened. And so as they came home, they were very, very happy and a little bit high and excited because it hadn't turned into any kind of a firefight, as they used to call them. He was the door gun, so he got to sit right in the doorway. And so the pilot, feeling a little happy as they got back close to the base, they were flying over a monastery and they Looked down, and the monks were outside and they were circumambulating the pagoda and the monks and the monastery. And they were just walking the way you would do walking practice here if you were walking around and around a pagoda. And this kid, because he undoubtedly was a kid, got kind of excited and thought it would be fun to buzz the monks on the, walking around the pagoda. And so he took the helicopter down very low. And if you've ever been near a helicopter, you know how noisy it is and how the wind just blows everything. And, and my friend said, and these monks just sustained their gaze on what they were doing and they just kept walking around the pagoda, picking up their feet and placing them down, picking them up and placing them down. And my friend said, in that moment I knew that they had something that I wanted that steadiness of gaze, that willingness to keep as awake as possible in those kinds of situations. So when we go home, because all of us, you know, Bob and I don't and Marcy don't get to stay here either tomorrow, uh, we all pack up and go home and we'll return to our lives, our periods of formal practice, however often you do that, but we hope you will because it really helps, can be this resting place. Because a time of meditation in your day can be a time when we pause and get still and actually look at what is so. And often, you know, it's those times when we pause that Sometimes things come to the surface that we've been kind of keeping back over here someplace haven't wanted to look at and they come up. And and so when we when we do that when we decide okay this is a time that we're devoting to being awake to what is, the Buddha actually says that when we have that intention of awakening, then the the mind can go straight to what is, not so much greed or aversion. So then we say oh this is the way this is the way it is. You know, this is the way my boss is. This is the way my relationship is. I really do have a problem with food, alcohol, time, whatever it is that we have a problem with. You know, maybe it's just as simple as this is the way the weather is today, you know. Yesterday it was hot. Today it's a little bit chilly and that it is the way it is, and just sort of relaxing into the isness of it instead of fighting it the way we do so much. And so, this is what begins to allow us to dwell evenly in an uneven generation. And it's the place, it's those pauses where we begin to see that there is the potential of freedom from suffering in every moment. Not freedom from pain, but freedom from suffering. It's also important to say, it's it's what allows us to relax. I did, was doing it myself just a few minutes ago. I was sitting here and thinking, doing the sitting, and all of a sudden I thought, I am so happy to be here with all of these amazing, you are an amazing group of people, every one of you. And you know, and I'm teaching with amazing teachers, and we've had amazing managers and cooks, and the crickets were cricking, and the breeze was breezing, and it was just beyond delicious. And you know, if you don't stop, how often do we stop to take in the yummy stuff? We don't, you know? You're cruising on down the highway as fast as we can. So it also allows us to be awake to that as well. So then the second place is resting in the Dharma. Resting in that which is true, the truth which is ultimate, the truth which is so ultimate it can't even be spoken. And so maybe you have some sense of this very ultimate truth. Most of us do, I think that which lies even beyond our ability to express it, or sometimes I call it the mystery. But most of us don't all of the time, it's not so accessible. And so for many, the actual teachings of the Buddha become something to pursue and to study, and for many they become a real haven. So I wanted to touch today, again, because we didn't very much in this retreat, Bob did the other night, on the core of the Buddha's teaching. There are two things which are really core. And actually, you know, I like to tell this story. Some years ago I sat a period of self retreat and I thought I would read um a whole group of the Buddhist suttas. And I was reading the Majjhima Nikaya, which is the middle length length discourses. And, you know, all of you have sat a lot of retreats. You know, if you go to a Mary Grace or a retreat, you get Mary Grace or a shtick. After a while, you begin to understand what I'm going to talk about, and you know what Bob talks about, and we know what Jack Cornfield talks about, and we know what, you know, Sharon Salzberg and Sylvia Borstein and everybody has their particular flavor, and they're a little bit. After a while, they're a little bit predictable. You know, we're not so surprising. We have our favorite things, and you know what, the Buddha did too. It was so gratifying. Went, yay, he's just like the rest of us, you know. Over and over and over again, the Four Noble Truths and Karma. Over and over and over. So it's so helpful to sort of immerse yourself in some of this because the Four Noble Truths are really about how we suffer and how we come to an ending. And it's very simple. He says if you get attached to things being different from the way that they are, if you really have to have them be different, you're kind of, you know, clinging to that, you will suffer, you will, period. It's true, it's true, it's very true. And he says, if you can let go, you will come to an ending of suffering. And he gives the Eightfold Path as a guide to letting go. Wise understanding, wise intention, wise speech and action and choice of livelihood, and wise effort, concentration, and effort, mindfulness, and concentration. If you've seen that the prayer wheel down by the gate, that's the Eightfold Path that's on there. Um, And... So this is the the core of these teachings. And, you know, and actually they can be summed up in two words. Let go. Ajahn Sumedho, in a wonderful piece of advice, said, be like an earthworm who knows only two words, which is a lot for an earthworm, I thought. (laughs) Let go, let go, let go. So as you're tunneling along through the heart and mind, you know, that's all you need to know is let go, let go, let go. And then the other core teaching is that of karma. And both of these, you know, we could talk, we could have a whole retreat on, or several on the Four Noble Truths, and another one on karma. So you're just getting the little thumbnail tonight. And so the teaching on karma acknowledges that all actions have their reverberations. And so many situations arise out of causes and conditions and the karmic actions of... actions that have been done intentionally by beings. And it's helpful to really begin to see this. You can't figure out the karma of any particular moment. For example, we could say, well, what is the karma that brings all of us here? And we would have my story and Bob's story and Marcy's story and your stories and the stories of the people who built the bell and And, you know, it would begin, pretty soon it gets so complex, the Buddha said, you will go crazy if you try to figure out what the karma is that brought you to this moment. What's very important is to know that our actions reverberate and create karma because that's where we can change things. That's where we can change things. So when we realize, oh, I don't have to put up with this particular situation. I heard a lovely story today from someone about not realizing that they didn't need to to stay in a place of discomfort that there was an action they could take and it would change things and it did you know amazing huh and and so it's very helpful to think and to think about how they reverberate i've already talked about the buddha think about Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Mother Teresa and, you know, all of these people who have done amazing things. And then the the reverberations go out and go out and go out. And we can begin to trust it. We can begin to trust. I have a wonderful elderly friend who died a few years ago. She was raised in Germany before Hitler. She knew the likes of Hermann Hesse and people like that. And then she was in the resistance during the war, and then became very involved in peace movements after the war. And the last greeting card she sent out, um, then the year before she died, it said, "I have no regrets." She'd done it in calli- calligraphy. I have no regrets whatsoever. Isn't that amazing? To come to the end of your life to know that you know she had done so many good things, and she could rest in the truth of that in the knowledge of karma, that it had set good things in reverberation. So this can lead in us to a real deep commitment to actions which are kind and compassionate and deeply ethical because then we know that we will have no regrets. We can trust the karma. And then maybe the last thing just to say is to continue what you've been advised to do this week. You know, the teachings of the Buddha, he over and over again says in his teachings, the Four Noble Truths, you know, check it out. Get attached, be my guest, you know? (laughs) If you get attached and then get curious, you know, am I gonna suffer? Let's see if I hold on really tightly to I have to have this thing my way, you know? And find out. If it turns out not to be suffering, let me know. I'd be interested to know. Or, let go and see where that takes you you know that it 's that it 's that constant checking out to see that it, does this really work that 's very, very helpful it 's a little annoying that the Buddha is right so often. you know I sometimes wish um, that it weren 't true that I could be attached, and I would be all right, but it doesn 't seem to turn out that way. So then the sangha is the resting place. You know, how much we need each other. We really, really do. And these last 22 years where I've been the guiding teacher at Vipassana Santa Cruz, at first I wasn't the guiding teacher because there wasn't any, I didn't have a title. I just was. But ultimately it became that. And um, and I've also been deeply involved here at Spirit Rock. and. I have just come to love the Sangha. You know, I know that everybody here is doing their best to see deeply into themselves, into their situation, to see what is true. And I know that everyone here is trying to keep their hearts open to themselves and to other beings. And I know that everyone here is keeping the precepts. I can put my wallet down and walk away from it And it will be there when I come back, which is not true of too many places these days. You know? And I know that people are trying to speak wisely and well and carefully. And I am here to tell you, I have been to a gazillion meetings here at Spirit Rock and at Vipassana Santa Cruz. And that commitment to wise speech makes all the difference. And meetings actually are often fun. Which a lot of meetings aren't. And it's very helpful how much better they go. And, you know, every now and then someone will stop and go, Oh, let me think about that. I don't know if it's wise speech or not. So it's very powerful to come together as a group. And I know some of you live in places where you can't do that. And I've, I've heard some, you know, that how hard that can be. And and there are ways of reaching out you know, into other communities and, and certainly the internet has changed a lot for people who live in remote places. But it is very powerful to be able to gather. And we know it isn't always easy. I mean, we all came from families that were probably not so functional and um, there are always difficult people in every community. But they are, of course, when they show up. Our teachers, and i 've always loved you know that wonderful story from Gurjeev, you know who was had a group of students, and there was one guy in the group who was just he was a pain in the tail, he was so difficult, and everybody just struggled and struggled and struggled and then one day he decided he wasn 't going to be there anymore, and then he showed up again, and it turned out that Gurjeev went and got him and offered him money to come back into the group because he felt that his presence was so valuable for the other students to bump up again. So, you know, maybe your teacher has paid that difficult person to be present in your life. Mm. So then we come to the next three. Your virtue your generosity and the devas. So, you know, I'll bet not too many of you think about how virtuous you are very often, you know. And it's interesting to consider, you know, we're not not even supposed to talk about it. There's that sense of, well, if you're really careful ethically, you know, you don't talk about it too much. And sometimes it's even hard to remember Like, when did you last do something where you were really careful about keeping one of the precepts? And we don't tell those stories. We have this notion that somehow we're supposed to be modest, I think, about those things. And there's a wonderful American Indian tradition in which you're supposed to tell those good stories. It's helpful to remember where you did well. And it's helpful to give that give voice to that story once in a while, so this place of our own virtue you know we, we know how to create it it's it 's by living by those five training precepts of not killing, not taking what hasn't been offered to you, not harming with your sexuality, not harming with your speech, and not intoxicating the body or mind you know and remember that wise speech, we talked about it this afternoon, is honest, beneficial, timely, and kind. So we know that when we inhabit these precepts that there's a kind of peace that begins to happen around our lives. And it's a place where, I've come to think of it as we're not creating wars. We're not creating wars inside of ourselves and we're not creating wars outside of ourselves. I recently, something came up around one of my daughters, and I was annoyed. And I think, well, I can even tell you, my older grandson is not coming to my birthday party because he has a football game. And he's only 11, so, you know, what is this? It's not like he's a pro ball player or anything. (laughs) Surely grandma's birthday. And I was really irate, and I was revving up to... And then my older daughter kind of sat me down over the phone and said, Mom, you know. And I began to realize I didn't have to create a war. I could create a war. I could. I could have made a scene. We could have had a battle. I could have, who knows what would have happened. It probably would have created a lot of ill will between my son-in-law, whom I love, and my older grandson, whom I also love. And I didn't have to do it. And that was actually what allowed me not to do it, was to realize that I could I could stop the war. I could stop, there's some a lot of wars I can't stop, but that one I can. And so that's true for every one of us. We have wars that we do not need to enter into. Working with the Brahma-Biharas, with loving-kindness and compassion, with sympathetic joy and equanimity, also really helps to support that, that place where we're extending goodwill to others, where we're being willing to be with each other in the presence of great pain sometimes, where we're really working at appreciating someone else's happiness, which is much harder than it sounds, and doing it all with that sense of balance and evenness and calmness that comes from equanimity. These are, remember, they're called the Brahma-viharas, and the word vihara actually means a dwelling place. So this is another place where you can rest the heart and the mind. And, you know, it's another thing that I've heard so many times as I've taught here about the people who begin to realize that living in this way is then a place of refuge, you know. I wanted to find for you um, a quote about Deepama, which I couldn't find. Deepama was a wonderful Indian uh, Vipassana teacher, a woman who died mm, now, probably 15, 18 years ago. But um, somebody described uh, a sort of uh, a fantasy of opening her up, you know, and inside her heart, they found you know baseball players and drunks and cranks and students and all kinds of people and even me you know how did i get there and that's the kind of heart that you know really becomes the heart that's so big also becomes a resting place for for ourselves and for all other beings Dina Metzger says, there are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. There is no time not to love. So then the next resting place is our own generosity. The Buddha says, generosity brings happiness at every stage of its expression. We experience joy in forming the intention to be generous. We experience joy in the actual act of giving something. And we experience joy in remembering the fact that we have given. So everybody think back to a generous act that you've done. And just think about it for a minute. Can you still taste it? Yeah? Yeah, I see some heads nodding. Yeah. That's one of the wonderful things about generosity, is that place where you can I can think of a couple of things that have happened in my life years ago and they're still so sweet to remember that 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 generous act. Even when it's not huge generosity, you know? Recently, we've got the new statistics that have come out about this country, for those of us who live here, not all of us do. The poverty in this country is at an all-time high, you know. And what's true, as I look around the room, is I imagine most of us in this room have enough. We're maybe not rich, but we're getting by somehow. Some of us have more than enough. And so the practice of generosity is a very basic practice. It's the first practice that's taught in the sequence of practices in Asia. So children learn generosity and then they learn virtue and then they learn to meditate. We tend to take it the other way. You learn to meditate and then we talk about precepts and then generosity comes at the other end. And one of the things about generosity is everybody can practice it. It does not matter. It's not dependent on means because there's all kinds of generosity. There's generosity of time and energy and just sitting with somebody sometimes is a very generous act. And I have a group of students right now in Santa Cruz and we're studying a list that has that starts with generosity, actually. And so they, in the last couple of weeks, have been committed to doing five conscious acts of generosity every day. That's a lot, actually. And it's not that kind of automatic generosity that a lot of us do. It's giving it your attention so that you really know that you're being generous when you're being generous. I'm going to be very interested to see how that's worked out. And of course here, like we mentioned the other night, here at Spirit Rock, this is all the fruit of generosity. This building, this place... You know, pretty soon we're hoping that there's going to be some new buildings, and it all comes out of great generosity of spirit. The same thing's true for our center in Santa Cruz. You know, we inhabit a, a much more modest situation, but it still comes out of the generosity. And there's there's places all over the country, all over the world, that are that way, that have are gifted from the open hearts of many, many people. So it's really important as you practice generosity and, you know, you've even talked earlier about the dana, to really taste it, really enjoy it. I hope as you fill out all those forms, it sounded really complicated this afternoon, but, you know, as you do all of that, you take time also to appreciate what it is that you're doing. So then, lastly, Resting in the Devas, this is my favorite part actually. It's like, well, okay, Devas, what are we gonna do with that? We're Americans in the twenty first century, really. You know. And how do we rest with this notion of heavenly beings? Because some of you undoubtedly really question their very existence. Although I'm sure there are some people, because there always are, who believe that they exist and have had experiences that they believe show that. And, you know, a few years ago I was teaching in some Christian Buddhist situation. I was sort of interested in the notion of prayer and I went to my friend Ajahn Amra, who is a really wonderful monk, and I said, Bhante, I said, What do you think about prayer? And he said, Oh do it. He said, there are just all kinds of beings out there who are happy to listen to you if you want to pray. So, you know, there you have it. All kinds of beings. So, but however you hold it, you know, the notion of devas isn't quite so concrete as your own virtue and your own generosity or your sangha and community at home or the Stacks of teachings, you know, books of teachings that you've... So, what has occurred to me as I've hung out with this resting place is that the picture, the picture is very, very big. It is way bigger than what this puny four inches of gray matter can possibly take in. I actually am very happy that that's true. We don't know. You know, the the beginning of this particular piece of the universe, or this universe, we have some sense now, was 14 billion years ago. I mean, that's a figure that the mind can't even wrap itself around, really. We now know, as I said the other night, that every molecule in our bodies Comes out of supernovas of stars that 's what it takes to create heavy elements, and so that 's what 's spawned us, but we who knows which one probably a bunch of them um, and we certainly don 't know when we don 't really know uh, how, what is it that life is or why it is that it is or how it is that it happens, you know or how all of this comes together. One of my friends. Um, who's done some Zen practice, spent many, many years with a great koan. And a koan is one of those things, I think we mentioned it in here, where you have this statement or question that doesn't make rational sense. So here's the koan. What is this? What is this? It's a fabulous. Try it. You know, go out tonight, look around, and really ask, what is this? What? Huh? Huh? What? What is this? And, and, you know, of course, you have to not know. So here's, here's a poem. Here's a poem. It's, it's a lovely poem. It takes, it's a little bit long, but it's well worth. It's called The Silence of the Stars. When Lawrence Vanderpost one night in the Kalahari Desert, told the Bushmen he couldn't hear the stars singing. They didn't believe him. They looked at him half smiling. They examined his face to see whether he was joking or deceiving them. Then two of those small men who plant nothing, who have almost nothing to hunt, who live on almost nothing, and with no one but themselves, led him away from the crackling, thorn-scrub fire and stood with him under the night sky and listened. One of them whispered, "'Do you not hear them now?' And Vanderpost listened, not wanting to disbelieve, but had to answer, "'No.' They walked him slowly, like a sick man, to the small, dim circle of firelight and told him they were terribly sorry. And he felt even sorrier for himself and blamed his ancestors for their strange loss of hearing, which was his loss now. On some clear nights, when nearby houses have turned off their televisions, when traffic dwindles, when through-streets are between sirens and the jets overhead are between crossings, and when the wind is hanging fire in the fir trees, and the long-eared owl in the neighboring grove between calls is regarding his own darkness. I look at the stars again, as I first did to school myself in the names of constellations, and remember my first sense of their terrible distance. I can still hear what I thought, at the edge of silence, were the inside jokes of my heartbeat, my arterial traffic, the sea above high sea of my inner ear, myself tunelessly humming. But now I know what they are. My fair share of the music of the spheres and clusters of ripening stars, of the songs from the throats of o- the old gods, still tending even the tone-deaf creatures through their exiles in the desert. So, you know, I go to the planetarium sometimes and I weep when I see those images of vast, deep space. And I actually, every day, go to the astronomy picture of the day I recommend it to you on the internet as part of my spiritual practice. It's what I do before I do anything else on my computer each day. What is going on here? It's so vast and mysterious. You can even notch it a little farther. There's a story, a Zen story, another Zen story, I like these Zen stories, Um, about a Chinese emperor in about the thirteenth century, Emperor Wu. And he was a great warrior but he was also a great spiritual seeker, but he was the emperor. And it was very, very hard to get anyone to give him anything other than sort of superficial spiritual teachings which were designed to make the emperor feel happy. And that, of course, is not necessarily very deep spiritual teaching. And he kept wanting, you know, to find something. And one day he walked into his court, and there was this very, very tall, blue eyed, red headed giant of a man. It was Bodhisattva Dharma, the great Zen patriarch, but he didn't know that. And, um, he was very startled, and there was something about Bodhidharma that drew him. And so he said to him, "Um, I'd like to ask you some questions. And he said, I've built a lot of monasteries in my day and been very helpful to the monks and the nuns who lived there. What about the merit of all that? You know, the merit is the goodness, it's sort of the Buddhist banking system. And... Bodhidharma looked at him and he said, no merit. So the emperor was pretty startled because you don't tell the emperor no merit for all the work that he's done. You know. So he immediately kind of thought, oh, this guy's interesting, you know, he's not just catering to me. So then he said, well, what about all of these volumes and volumes of, of um, spiritual writings? And Bodhidharma said, Vast emptiness, nothing special. So then the emperor looked at him and he said, Who are you standing there? And Bodhidharma said, Haven't a clue. (laughs) Isn't that great? Haven't a clue. I read this story. I was sitting in another solo retreat and I was not a very happy camper. And so I decided to take it on as a practice. I completely recommend it. Just ask yourself every now and then, who are you standing there? And then try on, I don't know. Don't know who you are. Don't know who you are. Because that's... You know, where we begin to relax into we're not so solid and so concrete. We can relax into being an infinitesimal speck in this huge, huge, vast picture. Or we can, you know, relax into the just the truth of our of of the fact that there seems to be awareness and consciousness. What is that? And whose is it? And it doesn't seem to be so very common in the universe, so that's interesting, too. Resting in the devas points toward that which we cannot know in time and space. You know, even with or without the actuality of devas, it doesn't matter. It's very mysterious. So this is what I take this last resting place to be, is where we rest in that vastness and that which is mysterious. So these six resting places center where we can find, again, what we have learned on this retreat and where we can continue to deepen that learning, where the insights will continue to open. The three refuges, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, the place of generosity and virtue, and this vast place of the mystery of our being. All of these help to support us so that we're not possessed by greed and hatred and delusion. And we will find moments of true freedom from suffering. We simply must practice. It's the practice of attention and love that leads us to these resting places. So one last poem. This is from a woman whose name is Rebecca Baggett, and it's called Testimony for My Daughters. I want to tell you that the world is still beautiful. I tell you that despite children raped on city streets, shot down in schoolrooms, despite the slow poison seeping from old and hidden sins, into our air, soil, water, despite the thinning film that encloses our aching world, despite my own terror and despair. I want you to know that spring is no small thing that the tender grasses curling like a baby's fine hairs around your fingers are a recurring miracle. I want to tell you that the river rocks shine like God, that the crisp voices of the orange and gold October leaves are laughing at death. I want to remind you to look beneath the grass to note the fragile hieroglyphs of ant snail, beetle. I want you to understand that you are no more and no more and no less necessary than the brown recluse, the ruby-throated hummingbird, the humpback whale, the profligate mimosa. I want to say, like Neruda, that I am waiting for a great and common tenderness, that I still believe we are capable of attention, that anyone who notices the world must want to save it. So let's sit resting our minds in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, resting them in virtue and generosity and devas, so that we will have that blessed attention to take out to the suffering world. So thank you very much for listening and please enjoy your walking.